Positive Media Diet Podcast. I am Wendy Fuller, and with me today is Mary G. Thompson, who is the author. Tell us about your latest book. Uh, my latest book is called Evil Fairies Love Hair. It's about kids who have to feed um, fair hair to their fairies so they can grow them and get a wish. Whatever you want, you get it. All you have to do is grow the fairies by feeding them hair. It's That's easy. It? It's very <laughs> easy. It's not as easy as it sounds. Oh, it is. As it? you'll learn if you read the book, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, that sounds really exciting. Um, so we're going to talk about seven positive news stories uh, from the Positive Media Diet Twitter feed, which is at Pause Media Diet uh, on Twitter. And... I just want to get your reaction to these seven stories. So you won't have heard them or have read them ahead of time. Um, so I'm just going to explain them to you. And then you can tell me what you think. Sounds great. So I have some exciting news for myself. Uh, you may not find this ex exciting, but I think it's fantastic because my quality of life is so much better than it otherwise would be right now, which is, even though there's pollen-mageddon at the moment uh, because all the trees are releasing all the pollen because we had such a long winter and it's whatever, I haven't had allergies that bad this year. Um, like, my eyes have been a little bit itchy and I've only sort of been sneezing and had a little bit of runny nose. But most everybody else is crazy right now, like taking Claritin, and Claritin's not even working for some people, like it's just really bad. And I couldn't figure out why my allergies, which usually are pretty miserable for a couple of weeks at least, aren't that bad. And then I read this article about probiotics and allergies, how there's a new study um, that looked at 23 different randomized trials um, having to do with probiotics and how they affected people. And it turned out that out of the seven, 17 out of the 23 trials, um, people didn't experience their allergies as badly. And so they're thinking that maybe the probiotics um, somehow protect the immune system from reacting to the inflammation as much. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been taking probiotics for like six weeks uh, now, and that might be it. That might be why my allergies haven't been so bad right now. Whoa. Like what probiotics have you been taking? I'm assuming there must be a bunch of different kinds. Yeah, there are. So um, probiotics are in, like, pickles and sauerkraut naturally because it's fermented food because uh, it's the good kind of bacteria that needs to be in our intestines. Um, but I've been taking pill form, um, just a generic one from uh, Dwayne Reed. But before that, I was taking a brand name one, which I probably shouldn't name. But um, basically, they're live cultures of particular strains of bacteria in pill form. Um, so I've been taking one of those every day for about six weeks. I mean, I, I still eat pickles and, you know, kimchi and sauerkraut and stuff too, but uh, not on a daily basis. It's just hard to say because, like, you have to match whatever you're taking with what the study did and, like, do the same regimen and, like, do, do like, more of a scientific test to just be like, oh, well, maybe because of this, this has happened. Because also you may not have encountered the pollen as much as you have encountered it in the past. I mean... I don't know where you've been or what you've been doing. You've moved to a new apartment. Maybe you live in a better environment. I don't know. But you don't really know either until you do it, like, in a more, like, scientific, regimented way. Which, considering that it's my daily life, I, yeah, it's not really going to happen. I mean, just anecdotally, you know, it doesn't hurt. I was taking them for a different reason. But if this is a side benefit, that's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, they've shown 
that probiotics have a lot of other um, benefits as well that are in addition to just being good for the gut. You know, even if there's a chance that it's reduced my allergy symptoms, I'm pretty happy with that. Like the fact that I'm not completely miserable right now is kind of a fluke. I haven't had to take Claritin once this year and this is like one of the heaviest pollen years in forever from what all of the different media reports are saying. I don't know, you're right, it may not be because of that, but even if there's a chance, I don't know, it seems good to me. <laughs> You can't really do a scientific study of one, can you? On yourself? No, no, you can't really. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I just think that, like, if it's for sure that that's what's causing it, like, if it is, then, I mean, I just think that we don't know. Just no, from, true. like, because you've been taking it and it was random and you didn't take it purposefully for this thing and you're not being monitored by a doctor and um, you don't know for sure, like, say you're doing more than one probiotic or, like, is this the optimal like pill free to be taking is what's in the pill really what's on the label because there's been a lot of issues with that recently um in the news i'm glad you don't have allergies this year <laughs> i'm really happy about that i'm just skeptical about like the cause and effect relationship of the sure. pills you've been taking sure yeah i mean did the, did the study say how long the people were taking the pills for and exactly what they were taking oh if you were going to go on a regimen you would want to know do I have to take it all year long or do I just take it during allergy season? And exactly right. what do I take? Because you don't want to take more than you, you need if that's what's causing the, the benefit because that there could be side effects that you don't know about. Yeah, absolutely. There could be lots of weird stuff going on inside your body that you don't realize. Um, so you wouldn't want to be, like, taking huge, large doses of something for, like, every day for the entire year if you don't have to. If right. it's not helping, you don't know what the effects are going to be of that if you were to do it. Uh, according to the article, the so they were taking normal probiotic recommended dosages, and that this was a side benefit of having taken those. Um, but that is part of the problem, is that the strains that were being used were all different, and so they were saying that they're going to have to do extra um, research because it's not they're not all exactly the same studies. So the 23 different studies are studying 23 different things, um, but in general, across the, the, 17, the 17 different studies that showed improvement. Well, it's definitely encouraging. It's like, yeah, here's, highly a, encouraging. here's an avenue for people who suffer from allergies and they've been unable to find a solution. Yeah, I would be interested in finding out what like a re reasonable regimen would be for somebody according to a doctor based yeah. on science. And I think those do. studies are probably going to follow. story is all is it is about food the last story was kind of about food this one's definitely about food it is a problem that we have uh so many people who need protein and we have these developing countries that are becoming wealthier in which people want more protein but that it takes so much in the terms of resources to raise say beef so you know if you have 10 kilograms of feed that you feed to a cow you're only going to get one kilogram of meat from that cow that you can eat. So a lot of people, including the United Nations, are saying that we need to start raising and eating bugs, insects. Mmm. Yummy. 
I read that somewhere, yeah, a while ago. There were people were talking about uh, how bugs are a good source of protein, yes. Yes, exactly. Well, and the, the United Nations put out a report, I think, in 2013, and that sort of got people's attention. And I'm like, oh, wait, this is a thing we're going to have to do. We're really going to have to think about eating bugs. The official term for eating bugs is called entomophagy. Can we just eat soil and green? Because I like that. <laughs> Um, I, I'm not super keen on eating humans. I think you probably have the same problem with the amount of feed and the amount of meat that you end up with. Uh, because... Well, you just eat dead people. That's how it works. Ugh, gross. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what are you going to do with this? It's like total waste to not use to the, not the use bodies, dead, you know? the dead people. Yeah, I don't know if it's <laughs> a, total, a total waste. Um, <laughs> Back to bugs. <laughs> Back to bugs, yes. So... There are 30 companies in the U.S. who, well, in North America, I should say, um, who are looking into raising, well, crickets specifically. Um, so they are raising crickets to sell either as whole or as a finely ground powder, which they're calling cricket meal. Um, and apparently you can buy now, you can buy products that have, you know, cricket meal in them, like cookies, granola bars, crackers, chips, dog treats. They're even working on like a like a paste as if it were like peanut butter but crickets cricket um, butter mm. cricket butter actually yeah. i'm totally on board with this i'm like not particularly squeamish um about what i eat as long as it's not still moving so i would eat it i think you know i i would too and i'm i'm mostly vegetarian and i have to wonder like do crickets count is vegetarian? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know if crickets count as vegetarian. Well, you're the one that chose to be vegetarian, so you can choose whether you want to eat crickets or not. <laughs> That's true. And actually, I'm not technically vegetarian since I eat fish and shellfish, but I was for 10 years. I was totally vegetarian. Um, no, I think that this is a great idea, and it's also relatively easy to raise and, and, you know, to raise a population of crickets. And you get, you know, you put in 10 pounds of feed or 10 kilograms of feed, and you get 9 pounds of cricket meat, so it's really efficient. I will, I would, yeah, I'm definitely on board with that, because I am a person who needs a lot of protein, and I eat a lot of meat, and it's, you know, sometimes it's a pain to cook and all that stuff, and if <laughs> If you gave me some cricket meal that I could throw on a bun or whatever, <laughs> I, hey, it's all good. That sounds great. It's all good. I mean, it's not like crickets are disgusting. Like, it, it not, I wouldn't be on board with, like, cockroach meal or yeah. something like that. Right? But crickets, they just don't sound that gross. They, they aren't. I don't think. I mean, yeah. 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 was a mystery for a little while about um, why mortality rates of kids dropped in the 1960s after the measles vaccine started you know being um, produced and, and injected into children all over the world um, at pretty much every country saw a huge reduction in the rates of mortality for children pretty much across the board and they couldn't figure out why very recently there was a team looking at data from uh, the U.S., Denmark, Wales, and England, all the way back to the 40s. And what they found with computer models is that measles actually wipes out the immune system. So if you get measles, if you can crack measles and you survive, your, your immune system basically forgets how to function and you become susceptible to pretty much everything. 
Um, and so that's why if you had measles, you were that much more likely to die of something else later if you survived measles. So once there was a measles vaccine, suddenly all these kids weren't dying of other secondary infections, um, which is fantastic news and all the more reason for people to get vaccinated for measles. Yes, I read that story too, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, I don't really know. I mean, it's not going to help be- people who are against vaccination because they're idiots. And that's just like the bottom line, you know? <laughs> like, I feel like those people are just like on, they like have an inability to learn. I mean, that's a cynical view. Like, I mean, maybe there are some people who are, who will change, but I'm just very like cynical about those people. Well, you know, I actually, I actually know someone who has decided that this is something that they want to question, um, and they see it as questioning sort of the authority um, that's just sort of accepted wisdom. So, and for them, they have decided that this is something that is like a conscientious objection issue, <clears throat> and they're actually quite concerned that states like California have made it mandatory for children to get vaccinated. Because they're idiots. You know, I don't. I don't think it's a level of intelligence. I think it really is. Um, it's perhaps an unwillingness to trust information that's being given from uh, government authorities. Because they have no ability to like think about the source of the information, the reasons behind the information, and make a, an accurate judgment, which means that they're an idiot. I, I don't. I don't necessarily agree with you about them being. Um, an idiot. I do. I do think that there are individuals who have very strong feelings about this and who um, should be looking at the data. And perhaps, uh, if they had had more scientific training or or could trust that the information that is being given to them is something that they could accept, um, then there wouldn't be this this issue. As it is, I think. There's an entire population of people, and some of them are highly educated women who have advanced degrees who are deciding not to vaccinate their children. Um, so there is a real problem in, I don't know, in communicating the importance or um, what's natural, like natural diseases or something that needs to happen, et cetera. And so there's the question of, do we allow, I think for these individuals, I'm, I'm not claiming myself as one of them. Um, for these individuals, I think there's a question of, you know, what should we allow our bodies to do? What should we allow evolution um, to, should we allow evolution to continue its course? And Perhaps they're seeing these diseases as, you know, a form of natural selection. I honestly don't know. I haven't had that depth of conversation with this individual, but well, I do know. Well, anti-vaccination is a form of natural selection because then idiots will be eliminated from the population. That sounds like social Darwinism to me, and I don't think I'm necessarily on board with that. <laughs> However... <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's as easy uh, to just dismiss people um, who hold these views as, as being idiots. I think that it's um, there needs to be some way to have a conversation in which both sides can accept points of view and hopefully come to some sort of compromise. Because as we know, not vaccinating is dangerous in terms of the overall population. I think there are some things where it really isn't appropriate to compromise, and this is one of them. Because it is important to vaccinate, and the only reason you shouldn't vaccinate is if you have a medical condition for that will cause the vac- vaccine to actually be harmful to you, which is very rare. Well, and that's <laughs> a lot of people's concern, is that the vaccines themselves are dangerous. 
uh, and that there's unacceptable risk in, in having children be injected with them. Um, and Which that's we not know to say, isn't true, and there's really yes. no, there's no compromise because the evidence is overwhelming. Exactly, exactly. The compromise needs to be where are the where's the fear? Where's the fear coming from? Why are, why is this a threatening position for certain people? How do we have a conversation that maybe can overcome that fear? Um, and until people can have that conversation with respect, and calling each other idiots isn't going to help. <laughs> I mean, that's, you make a good point in that you, in order to educate people, you do have to engage them and um, start from the position of respecting their position. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult because there's evidence that people, um, when they hear the evidence um, for a vaccination, actually become further entrenched in their position against vaccination. Um, so it's a, it's a sticky difficulty trying to convince people um, who are against vaccination to change their minds. And I guess your point is that we need to go deeper and figure out why that is and actually solve the problem instead of just throwing up our hands and calling them idiots, which I think is about point. So happy story about uh, nail salon workers in New York City that the New York Times oh, yes, exposed. That. Yes, that that's not such a great story. But the good story is that the governor's office, Governor Cuomo's office, responded immediately. They set up an emergency task force to help the nail salon workers. So the nail salon workers are um, usually grossly underpaid. They're almost being treated like slaves. It's really terrible. Terrible working conditions. They're exposed to all kinds of chemicals. They're um, they're made to work in some instances up to 24 hours at a time. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. The governor's office like saw this article in the New York Times and they jumped on it and now they have set up all of these um, emergency measures. They're going to go to every salon apparently in the city, which is amazing, um, and make sure that the nail salon workers are actually being treated well. They have to have ventilation in these salons. They have to post uh, the rights of the workers in public places. And I mean, that's just, I think it's an excellent example of uh, investigative journalism leading to immediate change, which is fantastic. Of course, there's the question of whether it ever should have gotten that bad in the first place. But nonetheless, it's a really good story that they have acted so quickly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, first, my first impression when I read this story is like, first of all, I don't even understand why people get manicures because I can paint my own nails. It's not very hard. <laughs> so, and I think it's weird and creepy to have somebody like fiddling with my hands and feet. So I have never done it before. I was like, I can't believe that people, there's so many clients for nail salons in the city that there are so many nail salons that have people working 24 hours a day and stuff like that. And I was like, who are all these women who were getting their manicures every week? And it just seems like a service that's completely unnecessary. (laughs) But having said that, people want jobs and they deserve to be able to do it safely. Um... And yeah, it's a it's a very good um, example of investigative journalism doing some good. Um, and I really like to see that, especially in the age. Um, you know, my dad's a journalist, and we're always lamenting the uh, end of newspapers. And I'm, it's nice to see a major newspaper still doing good um, investigative work. And the New York Times has laid off people recently too, or had buyouts and stuff. And so, um, at least they're still able to do good work. 
and I think it's uh, it's good for journalism in general to see uh, major newspapers doing this, and hopefully newspapers will continue to be able to do this um, and won't give up and just rely on Google for everything. And, <laughs> you know, consumers of newspapers should realize that it's important that we have journalists um, and newspapers willing to put in the time and effort to... Um, do these kind of reports and that it can actually do good. Yay. Lots of good. Lots and lots of good. And hopefully these women's lives will change for the better very soon. Our next story takes us to Hollywood where they have a gender bias problem uh, because they aren't they're not having women direct things. It's uh, it's actually so apparent that only 17% of television was directed by women last year. 17%, which is a ridiculously low amount of television to be directed by women. Maybe that explains why I don't like that much TV. Yeah. Maybe it's just not appealing to me. Probably, because 50% of the population isn't being represented by the people who are telling the stories. Maybe, maybe. Apparently, it's, it's worse with films because only 7% of the top 250 grossing films last year were directed by women. Um, 7%? 7, yeah, uh. 7%, which is actually two percentage points lower than 1998, which is ridiculous. It's actually gone down. Who, who knew that 9%? 7 percentage points, 7 of percent of the top grossing films, you said, though, not Of the 250 the, growing film, uh, grossing films, yeah. So basically the big films that the studios are hiring, they're only hiring men, period. Right, so anyway, this problem is so bad that the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, has decided that, in fact, someone in the government needs to do something about this. This is like federal uh, equal employment opportunity uh, violation stuff going on. Um, So they have put together a a bunch of information um, about... You know, information that the women have given them. So they have testimony from lots of different women who've been told egregious things. Um, and they have compiled all this information to hand over to the government so that someone will investigate and do something because it seems to be uh, that this is, in fact, you know, a con- not a conspiracy is kind of a strong word, but that there's definitely um, barriers to women, like specific barriers to women being able to direct things. Yeah, I mean, there's conspiracy, and then there's just like the way. Shit is. <laughs> yeah. Well, or bigotry. I mean, it's just flat out, it's bigotry yeah. against women. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that, about the ACLU going after Hollywood? I think that it's appropriate to have, when there's such a disparity, that it's caused by bias. I know something about employment law, and I think it's always difficult to prove disparate impact claims. Um, to prove, you know, when you don't have an evidence of intentional discrimination, but you have a pattern of disparity. It's pretty obvious from what you said and from what we see on TV and um, if those statistics are accurate that there's a problem because I, I'm guessing, I would have to see the statistics, but I would guess that there are probably a much larger percentage of women in the industry than, than that so that they're not being represented. I don't know for sure. Actually, there. There isn't, uh, because this disparity exists across pretty much all uh, roles uh, within the industry. So writers, editors, producers, they're all disproportionately well, men. But the question is, like, how many women are attempting to enter, in the, f- enter the field? Like, how many women are going to school for right. this? How many women are in the lower-ranking positions, but they just aren't reaching the higher-ranking positions? 
Um, I mean, it's possible that there's a, there are fields where there just aren't women who want to be in the industry, and I don't think that's true for entertainment. I think that it's just caused by barriers, and I think that if investigation is done properly, that that's what they'll find. That's my guess. story it takes us back to New York City. It has to do with young graduating lawyers who sign up for something called the Immigrant Justice Corps, um, which is a program that sends them out into immigrant communities so that they can represent um, undocumented uh, immigrants in the legal system, which is a severe problem because there just is a shortage of lawyers willing to do that. Yes, it's a very important it's a very important thing that people need lawyers for that they can't afford lawyers for. And there's also a lot a large number of um, so called lawyers who take advantage of immigrants and take their money and don't do anything. So to have real qualified lawyers out there doing pro bono work on behalf of undocumented immigrants is fantastic. Yeah, it is. And it's being supported um, by the organizations such as the Robin Hood Foundation and the New York Community Trust, um, which is great. So these are nonprofit organizations that are willing to put money towards legal representation for these groups, for these communities. So this is still a program that is kind of in its infancy because there's uh, apparently there's only two classes of graduates so far that have joined up for this. Um, and some of the individuals that are participating are themselves the children of undocumented immigrants. Um, so it's kind of a really nice way for these people to give back because they know exactly how much um, this can mean to these individuals. I think it's good. I mean, it's really hard as a lawyer, especially if you just graduated from law school, to be able to afford to do pro bono work. Uh, anything that would fund pro bono work for... <laughs> Anything that funds legal aid, whether it's for immigrants or um, people who have landlord-tenant issues or people who have family law issues and can't afford to pay for a lawyer, is fantastic, and we need more of it. This is my plea. <laughs> the governments, <laughs> nonprofits, we need to fund legal aid so that we can actually pay lawyers to do this stuff because very few people can afford to just work for free <laughs> after going to law school and, and you know paying 100 thousand or more dollars for their law school education we have to pay people for their work to work on behalf of these populations that cannot afford lawyers for basic needs beautifully put story is uh, about the Supreme Court and one of the rulings that they had recently, which is that um, Florida had barred um, judicial candidates from asking for money in an effort to preserve um, their impartiality. So a judge couldn't go to someone and say, please donate to my campaign. They couldn't do that. They could have a campaign that would ask for money on their behalf, but they themselves couldn't solicit funds from anyone. Uh, and this went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court was like, yep, they are allowed to say whatever they want to, except please give me money. But what this means is that it's potentially a way for us to take this president and say, hey, wait a minute, Congress, to preserve your impartiality, it would be really great if 
you as candidates couldn't say, please give me money. But you have a campaign that can go on your behalf and say, please give us money so that he can get reelected. Um, so this is a potential uh, to lead to some campaign finance reform of our, you know, Congress people. <laughs> to be honest with you, like, so I haven't heard about the decision, so I don't know about the legal consequences or anything, but I'm skeptical of the factual, like, benefit of that because everybody, if they have a campaign that asks for the money, then you still know that that person still knows who's getting the money and there can still be the sort of de facto quid pro quo, even though official quid pro quo is, of course, illegal. <laughs> so I don't really see that. I don't really see that making much of a difference who's asking for it. The problem is how how much money is it's in politics. <laughs> the problem with the, what we need a campaign finance reform is just to eliminate most of the money <laughs> and the need to campaign and get and ask donors for money from, from anyone. The need for anyone at the campaign to ask donors for money um, and the ability of people to give money um, to influence policy. Um, well, I realize that's pie in the sky wish given the current state of Supreme Court precedent, but I don't know. I mean, what do you, why do you think that it'll actually help to have the candidate himself or herself not be able to ask? I think that it would add that extra. It's a, it's a step. It's a baby step. It's like um, we can't have the pie in the sky version, which is capping all funds, um, or we can't even have you know Citizens United overturned at this point, which um, allows large super PACs to, um, you know, as much money as possible can go into a super PAC and that super PAC can spend it on whatever they want to. You know, we can't do anything about that, but there might be small measures that we can sort of chip away at it. If we've learned anything from the conservative grassroots movement, it's that small measures mean a lot over time. (laughs) So there's no reason why we couldn't, we couldn't go a similar route and say, okay, this is a small thing, but we can keep um, individual candidates from attending fundraisers and glad handing and um, you know that kind of a thing. So fundraisers can still exist, but if the candidate themselves can't be involved, then there's this whole array of things that maybe can't happen. So maybe they can't go on a golf trip with their major donor. Maybe that's a violation. Um, so maybe they can't develop these personal relationships with individuals, giving them lots of money because it would be unethical. I don't know. I don't know. But it seems like this is a fairly decent baby step. Or at least well, is one that what they said? Like, um, that the, is it the candidate can't say, please give me money, but does that mean the candidate can't go to the fundraiser or can't play golf with the potential donor as long as he doesn't explicitly ask? Because I'm not familiar with this story at all. Um, you know, I'm not actually sure. But I agree with you, like, um... I, I'm, you know, I agree with you that there is a benefit to baby steps. So, I mean, especially when you look at the gay marriage cases and how, you know, the precedent 10 years ago was almost non-existent and the precedent was built over time through baby steps. And that happens in a lot of different areas of the law. So that does make sense to me that if we have a small step, it could lead to bigger things. But <laughs> I think we need a lot bigger, a lot bigger steps before it's actually practically going to reduce any of the... Um, effects of lobbying. But at the moment, apparently, according to this article, um, members of, of Congress spend a huge amount of their time literally on the phone calling people to give them money. Yes. And they can't do that on Capitol Hill, I guess. So they, they go like to little cubicles off, off campus, if you, <laughs> if you will, um, just so they can do telemarketing. 
And so apparently it would completely cut that out. And telemarketing is one of the biggest ways that they um, actually raise their funds. Because that's such a waste of the time, government time. It's yeah. like, I work for the government. I can't go in and just like, <laughs> I can't go like lobby for something that benefits me personally or like <laughs> spend all my time calling people to try and get a different job somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think of an analogy, but if I was wasting that much time during my work day, I would get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently they spend up to five hours a day on the phone raising money for their campaigns. So just this one baby step would at least free up their actual time so that they could maybe do their actual job. <laughs> yes, that would be a really big benefit. So yeah. there, there you've, you've identified the benefit that I'm, I'm definitely on board with that, for sure. <laughs> Thank you for joining us as we discussed seven positive news stories from the Positive Media Diet podcast. You can find me on positivemediadiet.com. You can also find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And you can connect with me on Twitter at at posmediadiet. Thank you so much, Mary, for, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And I hope that everyone goes and buys your book, Evil Fairies Love Hair, available now on Amazon and in your favorite bookstore. Thank you very much, Wendy. It's been great talking to you. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for taking the time. All right, until next time, when we talk about more positive news stories, I'm Wendy Fuller once again. Bye-bye.